Welcome to Estradiol Illusions, episode, this should be 13 by the time it airs, but we haven't quite figured out how to uh, time them all properly yet. Uh, I'm really excited to do this episode. It's one that I've been, I've had planned since I first started to do the podcast. Got a really great guest from the UK, our first foreign guest. We have Dr. Adrian Harrop, who is a uh, both a medical doctor and a really great uh, ally for the transgender community. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Well, um, <laughs> good afternoon to you. <laughs> good evening to me. <laughs> so we've got a, a great conversation planned about a, a bunch of topics that are currently, uh, if you're not aware, the state of the LGBTQ debate in England is constantly uh, it's a bit of a tumultuous state right now, as it is in America. And um, we have a conversation planned about the differences and about the uh, particulars of the UK scene. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Harrop on to talk about all of his experiences in the community. Yep, yep. Very excited to have a conversation with you about it. Really interesting area to talk about, something I've been involved with for quite a period of time now. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to explore some of the, uh, some of the relevant issues from your perspective as well. Um, you know, obviously getting an American slant on um, what can seem like a bit of a hellish issue in the UK at the moment. It's interesting to compare and contrast our experiences. Yeah. Yeah, there it's it's really fascinating because especially in America, the media is so sort of Trump centric. Everything is sort of the lead with Trump. And then the other stories are kind of a distant uh, kind of almost an afterthought. Mm. And a lot of the time it's it's not even what Trump's doing, like the like the transgender military ban, in, uh, for example, doesn't get a ton of like day to day coverage when it was implemented, when the court agreed to take it up. That was uh, talked about. But the rest of the time, it's usually just Trump, Trump, Trump. And the UK is a bit different in that regard. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, well, we've there's been a fair amount of coverage in our own media about the Trump transgender ban. Um but as you can imagine, with all of the active and ongoing debates and conversations around all different kinds of transgender-related issues um, in this country at the moment, um, the news is almost at a saturation point, really, where none of these issues, um, in a singular sense, can be explored in any real depth. Um, so a lot of the nuance and the complexity and the real awful adverse outcomes that are resulting from trump's transgender ban read the military um, are just not getting explored outside of the lgbtq media in the uk um, you know there's some great journalists out there covering it in a lot of depth and a lot of advocates and members of the commentariat who are covering it in a lot of detail and you know people on the inside of the community have got a relatively good grasp of what the consequences of those policies are going to be but outside of that it's a very very superficial kind of coverage um because i think to be honest um with the amount of debates discourse around all other kinds of transgender related issues going on in the uk at the moment i think everyone's just at the point of saturation to be completely truthful with you um so it's a shame that we've lost a little bit of a grasp on the on the complexity of the problem. Right. Um, and, and speaking of the saturation point, I mean, just to take a uh, step back, when do you think in your experience, um, I know even 
three or four years ago, the American media wasn't talking about transgender issues that much. They kind of waded into the, that poll over a period of time. So when do you think the British media started, you know, really engaging with this topic on a, on a weekly or even in some daily basis? I mean, it's really difficult to define a precise point when yeah. it all when it all started up. Um, I mean, certainly over the last twelve months, over the last year, um, the, the 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 rate and the intensity of the coverage in the media has just increased exponentially, uh, particularly over the last twelve months. I mean. There's a lot of people who've been involved in these conversations, a lot of the much more long-standing members of the activism community who've been around a lot, lot longer than me, who are, you know, a lot older than me, who've a lot more experience, who've got a lot more insight than I have. Um, It will tell you that this has been going on in one form or another for decades, this transphobic undertone in the media. Uh, But it's certainly only come to my own personal attention much more prominently within the last 12 to 18 months, I would say. And that's, that's because of the, the proposed changes to the, the GRA. Um, yeah, I'd guess so. Um, that's certainly been fuel on the fire, if you like. Um, I don't know whether you want to talk about some of the background to that, whether you, whether. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that would be great. Uh, okay, you're cool. a much, so, um, much better position. Well, let's just start with what that stands for. So in the UK, uh, we have a piece of legislation called the Gender Recognition Act. And that has been a a piece of law um, in the UK since, I believe, 2004. So that piece of legislation is now 15 years old. Um, And the GRA, in its present form, um, allows transgender people to be awarded with what's called a gender recognition certificate. And a gender recognition certificate, essentially, in its in very basic terms, is a replacement birth certificate. Um, and it allows various different records held by the state to be altered to conform with uh, the trans person's relevant gender marker. Um, now, in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate, there are a number of processes that a person has to go through. Um, now, there are a number of aspects to it. Um, one of the first and most central points to it is that the person needs to have a medical diagnosis um, of gender dysphoria. Um, and that has to be a signed off rubber stamp diagnosis by a specialist psychiatrist who is on a, a list of authorized professionals. Um, the trans person has to demonstrate that they have lived in their um, gender identity uh, for a period of, I believe, at least two years. Um, the evidence it varies from person to person what that evidence might constitute, but it might range from um, having your utility bills, your credit card bills, your bank statements in your um, appropriate name with the appropriate gender marker on them, um, all different kinds of stuff. And then once you've got all that evidence compiled together, what then has to happen is you have to make an application to, I believe it's called a gender recognition panel. Now, this gender recognition panel are a group of people 
who the transgender person never meets. Um, they essentially meet in secret and they will review the contents of this pack of evidence that is presented to them. And based on that pack of evidence, they will make a judgment as to whether, yes, this person meets the threshold for getting a gender recognition certificate, or they don't meet the threshold. Now, the guidelines about where that threshold sits are rather vague, rather indistinct, and quite a number of people who in, in good faith submit all this documentation to the gender recognition panel then get a decision of no, you're not having a gender recognition certificate and are then kind of left hanging as to, well, what do I do next? You know, and they're not really given much in the way of very precise and specific guidance as to what to do. Now, um, in addition to all of those steps that I've described already, this is also quite an expensive process. And this can amount to, you know, what would be the equivalent of several thousand dollars once someone has put all of that information together. Um, now, at the present time, um, there's a conversation in the UK about all different issues relating to that. And the, the direction of travel um, that is preferred by the majority the vast majority, it would seem, of the transgender community here in the UK and people who um, would describe themselves as allies to the trans community who advocate more broadly for the LGBTQ community um, would be to move in the direction of what, what is described as self-ID, self-identification. Right. Um, and I probably don't need to go into a, an in-depth discussion about what that means precisely, uh, but to move away from these really complicated, long-winded, expensive processes, and essentially what is a process of gatekeeping, uh, to yeah. move more towards a what we would describe here in the UK as a statutory declaration. This would be where you'd go to, um, I believe you might call it a notary in the United States, yep. uh, someone yep. who's authorized to put an official seal on documents, and you would effectively make, um, or you'd swear an oath effectively that I, this is my gender identity, I am going to live in this gender identity um, for the, the remaining portion of my life, um, and there, thereafter be awarded with a gender recognition certificate or its equivalent. Now, um, these kind of policies around self-ID, and, and I'm sure that your listeners, Ian, will be quite familiar with the fact that these have been tried and tested policies throughout the world. You know, numerous yep. jurisdictions have tried them. California has it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe New York has recently introduced a similar kind of yeah. system. Um, some countries in South America, Uruguay and Argentina, numerous um, countries that neighbor ourselves here in the um, in Western Europe, uh, Portugal, Malta, Denmark, you know, advanced westernized societies um, yeah. that have tried and tested these policies and they've worked very effectively without any problems whatsoever. Um, and trans people People who've used these processes have said, almost without exception, this has made my life and my experience of living in the world as a trans person much more straightforward and much easier, to put it, to put it plainly. Um, now, the government here in the UK, um, when they were voted in um, 
fair number of years ago now, um, stated in their manifesto is the term we use here. I'm not sure whether that is that an Americanized term. I'm not sure, but manifesto. Uh, yeah, my, yeah. my book is called The Transgender Manifesto. Oh, but are, that's, yeah. Sorry, um, I, didn't, I didn't know whether yeah. that translated into American English very straightforwardly, but there we are, yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the manifesto they were elected in on stated that they were going to look at reforming um, the Gender Recognition Act to make it more straightforward, make it more accessible, more affordable, just generally a much more user-friendly kind of procedure. Uh Now, what happened here in the UK is that that was opened to public consultation, um, which seemed to spark off this really quite, toxic and venomous debate here in the UK um, where numerous groups um, would pop themselves up um, and would claim that they were objecting to these proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act because of a perceived danger which would result for um, women and girls is usually the term that they would use and obviously they mean cis women and cis girls when they when they use that expression um now at a very superficial level a lot of these groups appeared to be relatively mainstream feminist type groups who were you know looking at issues to do with women's safety um protections for women and girls, et cetera, et cetera, and would raise what they would always describe as reasonable concerns. And even to someone who had a reasonable good grasp of the issues of issues arising in this discussion, this debate, might initially at a first glance take a look at a group like this and say, oh, well, that seems like a reasonable conversation to be having. Let's engage with the conversation. But it became very quickly apparent that these groups were not really interested in women's safety or the safety of young girls. What they were interested in is harming and hurting as many trans people as possible, um, particularly trans women. Um, And they would be throwing around all kinds of misinformation, inaccurate, misrepresented information um, about how trans women inherently represent a danger to women and girls. Um, Now, the evidence that we have for what kind of danger um, trans women represent, it's overwhelming. Trans women don't represent a danger to women and girls. There's no question about yeah. that. The evidence is is there. It's there for anyone to see. Is that trans women are women and live in the world as women are perceived as women by by the societies that they live in for the most part and are able to go about their lives in peace and quiet without causing any inconvenience or danger to anybody. Um, now they're was so much information thrown around and presented in the most inaccurate and disingenuous way about how trans women represented a threat of of voyeurism, of sexual assault, of rape, 
that trans women were um, motivated by sexual perversions. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, we get that all, too. all kinds of nonsense. And you've heard all the stories. And, you know, anybody who looks into it with any kind of critical eye can see that this is nonsense. What they're trying to portray, what they're trying to put, a tro- put across, it's absolute bullshit. You know, that the evidence just doesn't stack up. And what they present as the the danger or what they try and persuade other people um the danger to be are almost invariably anecdotal reports they're you know very very rare exceptional cases yeah of, yeah like the prison know, one was very blown absolutely, up absolutely you know and these are you know and one thing i stated about that when that story was being gone into at the time was that you know there are some bad trans people out there you know, in the same yep. way that there are some bad gay men out there, there are some bad people in every community in our society. And so being able to cite one example, one anecdotal report of one bad trans woman, what does that tell us? It tells us nothing. It doesn't give us any information that we can use um, to assess the the safety risk to the broader community of cis women and cis girls. It's just absolute nonsense. Um, in the yeah. same way that you could find me all kinds of cases of gay men who sexually assault other men. Um, I'm sure there are many, many examples you could pull off the internet um, and be able to use those, manipulate that information to persuade some impressionable individuals that I, as a gay man, represent a threat of sexual violence to them. I would know, you would know, and everyone with any kind of critical analysis ability would be able to see that that's absolute nonsense. Um, and that's just what's been going on for such a long time. Um, I mean, you mentioned about that, you, you use the term that prison case, um, I mean, you know, that was a particularly horrendous story. Yeah, we, you know, we got that over here. You know, it was, um, and it it fit every, it ticked every box um, for any transphobic group. You know what I mean? It was, it it was pretty much a a full house, really, in terms of what could be drawn out of that story. But um, yeah, so the so the debate has really become, and it's been ongoing for such a long time now difficult to imagine it ever being over um but the debate has become so toxic um and it's become more and more apparent as time has gone on what the motivations of this group are because as with any group of this nature um they do tend to start showing their true colors eventually um, if you give them enough time if you give them enough breathing space enough publicity they eventually show themselves what they are and um you know these are not feminist pressure groups primarily concerned no, with the safety they're... of women and girls they're not they're transphobic hate groups that's what they are um and that some of those groups we had uh, an instance a, a lot of what you're describing with the the feminist groups and we haven't talked about the media but we will in a while but um in america a lot of what you're describing in terms of all the vitriol against transgender people comes not necessarily from feminist groups although i mean there's uh, a, a couple that would fit that bill, but a lot of it comes from right-wing media and all mm. these conservative think tanks and papers like the Federalist, the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. And a couple months ago, there were some uh, well-known anti-transgender. Uh, they're really just bigots. Is the only term we could <laughs> use. They're not. They're not. They're not activists. They're not feminist. They're just yeah. 
but they had them uh they had them over here to talk about it and you want to look like for anybody who's trying to um claim to represent like the lesbian community and is is then going to sit on a panel with people who fought who still fight gay marriage to this day we get more of that um in in politics and everything it's a subject every day the whole religious freedom dog whistle that kind of stuff Mm. um i mean it's it's quite interesting you brought this up actually because i'm i'm well aware of the particular individuals that you're talking about and the the nature of their trip over to the united states um and it was really interesting at the time that in the conversations that were happening here over in the uk it was revealed um that there were quite deeply ingrained links between um these feminist pressure groups and um right-wing um evangelical Christian yep. groups in the US um, and various types of funding and cooperation and um, interpersonal links that existed between those groups here in the UK and those um, members of the right wing, quite the extreme versions of the right wing, in fact, um, over in the US. Um, it was quite interesting to see that see the light of day as it were um to be smoked out exactly. since um you know people had their suspicions for quite some time, but um, the individuals who went over to the U.S. on that specific trip made that made that situation very, very plain and clear for anybody to see. Um, and it's it's remarkable, really, how these people can sleep at night, essentially getting into bed with people who would do anything they could to restrict their freedom and civil liberties. Um, that these people um, who they can unite with over the trans issue are the same people who would deny lesbian and gay people the right to get married or adopt children or the right to be recognized in law at all or the right to be be protected from any type of discrimination. The same people who say the same nonsense about religious freedom always are the same people who then start going on about um, effectively allowing people to discriminate against um, lesbian and gay people. It always boils down, always boils down to that. And you don't have to scratch very, very far beneath the surface to see that when you meet someone who is overtly transphobic, the, the other levels of bigotry are not far below the surface. Um, And that's quite an interesting point, actually, in that, um, one thing that has happened here in the UK, I believe quite differently to how it is in America, to be honest, particularly in some parts of America or some sectors of American society. Um, in the UK, it's generally the case that being openly homophobic is not okay by anyone's in anyone's estimation. Um, uh-huh. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a reasonable view for anybody to take up. Um, particularly anybody in the media, anybody with a position in public life, it wouldn't be appropriate or admissible for them to be publicly speaking what would be interpreted as homophobic opinions, uh, because it just Mm -hmm. wouldn't be acceptable to the vast majority of the population. Um, Whereas transphobia being distinct from homophobia, even though there are lots of crossovers and lots of parallels, being a different entity, um, it seems that transphobia is still socially acceptable. And it's really interesting how a lot of people have come become quite prominent in 
our public life here in the UK and in our media circles and in journalistic circles who are quite freely able to speak what is overtly transphobic viewpoints. Um, But if that same person was saying anything along the same lines about gay people or lesbian people, they would be immediately shut down um, or they would lose their job. Um, It's not a freedom of speech issue. It's just about it being a socially unacceptable thing to say. Um, irrespective of what your views are on free speech. You know, you might well have free speech to say these things, but it doesn't mean you get to keep your job if you say them. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, been, it's been quite interesting seeing that play out here in the UK um, because we're kind of at the point where we were with homophobia maybe about 20 years ago. Because if you went back uh-huh. 20 years here in the UK, there was a lot of people writing in the papers, going on the news, appearing in TV who were overtly homophobic, who were saying that gay people are dangerous, that gay people spread disease, that gay people shouldn't be allowed near kids, gay people shouldn't be allowed to be teachers or nurses or doctors or whatever else. And that was pretty mainstream maybe 20, 25 years ago. And now it's those same commentators, that same body of bigotry, saying the exact same things about trans people here in the UK, Um, which is quite interesting, really, from a historical perspective, um, to see those same arguments, those same lines, those same tropes being wheeled out about trans people, the exact same ones that were used about gay people only two decades ago. It's quite bizarre to see that we're allowing this to play out without being stopped. It has been such a a secular nature. Somebody posted a video of uh, a comparison of a lot of, in times, the exact same Fox News commentators saying something about a gay person and then the exact same thing. Uh, You you said that uh, it was 20 years ago in England. It feels like here it was only like, probably about half that time it's been it's so strange to see how the gradual sort of uh rejection of homophobia or of homophobic uh statements by people in the media or in sports or whatnot it's it's still something that uh is is definitely determined a lot more by the employer than by the act itself and Mm -hmm. there's there's still a lot of uh still a lot of homophobic things that somebody can say and get away with it. Like the one that I always hear is, uh, if somebody says they, they disagree with the, uh, homosexual lifestyle, hmm. that that's considered a lot of times to be perfectly okay. Uh, and, and you're sitting there being like, okay, but, but what does that mean for you? You'll, you'll, you'll discriminate. You'll treat them differently because of that. I yeah. just, it, 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 it's such a, it's such a awful thing to say that's delivered in such a sort of plain and, I'm not a bigot, but I disagree with who you are. It just, it Mm. doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. And I mean, there's a very fine line, isn't there? And I mean, there's been a few cases of this playing out in the very, very recent past here in the UK about where that fine line lies between freedom of expression um, and it being enabled to express your viewpoint and to hold an opinion, uh, whether it's a bad opinion or not, you know, or whether it's a homophobic opinion or not, and how that translates into active discrimination and prejudice towards minority groups. And where does that line lie? Because obviously, 
there's a, a, a vast diversity of opinion that exists in the world around us. And I think that we'd be completely unrealistic if we ever thought that we were ever going to be able to eradicate homophobia or transphobia yeah. or sexism or racism from the world. We're not going to do that. That's just not going to happen. But it's about establishing the fact that, yes, you can hold that opinion if you want to hold that opinion, that's a matter for you and for you alone. But where the line lies is when that gets translated into active and direct discrimination against that relevant minority. So like, to be completely honest with you, Ian, if someone in my workplace or someone who I know here in the UK doesn't like me because I am a gay man and for no other reason, they just disagree or fundamentally um, take objection to the fact that I exist as a gay man. Well, you know what? If that's your opinion, you go ahead and hold that opinion. But <laughs> yeah. if that opinion gets translated into me as a gay man being discriminated against, that's a very, very different thing. That's a very different concept. So if you then, you know, call me out on the street and shout slurs at me as I'm walking down the road, or if you refuse to let me check into your hotel, or you refuse to sit me and my husband for dinner, you know, that's a very, very different thing. Um, uh-huh. And there's an interesting, interesting crossover there with the freedom of expression and um, freedom to hold um, religious views. Um, of views based on religion, um, which again, I believe is a matter for an individual. Everyone is free to hold whatever religious views they want to hold. Um, but my personal take on that would be that, well, a homophobic view that is motivated or driven or has a foundation in religion is still very much a homophobic view. There's no, no yep. argument about that. Um, a, and, it's my belief that those views should be able to be called out in the same way that political ideologies are called out. You know, that if someone disagrees with a particular taxation system on the basis of their political views, well, I have a right to engage them in debate and to call them out for why their view is wrong or why I perceive that view to be wrong. If someone is going to go out there and speak or speak openly about their homophobic views on the world and their dim view of gay people, I should have the right to call that out. I should have the right to engage that person in debate and discussion. If they're going to be free to say that about me, I should have the freedom to fight back on that as well. Um, but having said that, my personal view on that is that there is, a, again, a fine line between spirited and robust discussion and debate and what verges into harassment and hate speech. And I think sometimes yep. we walk a very, very fine line there, as in that I'm perfectly happy, if I choose to, to engage in debate with people about LGBTQ issues. I'm happy to do that if I want to do it. If, yeah, you know, if I, I agree. choose to do that, then I can do that. That's fine. And I'm happy to engage yeah. in those discussions with people who are willing to agree to some mutual terms of engagement is that you know you know this is not going to verge into the realm of harassment and hate speech this is going to be civilized and robust discussion and debate when it crosses that line i think that's when the conversation needs to be shut down and that's when people need to go their separate ways and that's when 
the authorities of the law in some circumstances need to step in and intervene uh, because you know no matter who you are you do not have a right to pursue a campaign of harassment against another individual yeah. irrespective of what your political disagreements might be or irrespective of what your religious views are and irrespective of whatever political conflicts might exist between you two as individuals you do not have the right to engage in harassment of another individual nothing gives you that right um and i mean i know that there's all kinds of questions that come up with come up there about civil liberties and about freedom of speech yeah. and all that type of stuff that i know that we have very different laws here in the uk so obviously i'm speaking from a very uk centric perspective um which is probably one of the reasons you wanted to talk to me but uh, you know it's exactly yeah. I, I, I know that these laws don't apply in the same way in the us as they do here in the uk and obviously i've right. I've, ne I've never lived anywhere else and so you know i don't know what the laws are in terms of their day-to-day -day functionality elsewhere in the world all i know is how the system works here in the uk and that's that's where we are right now well we're gonna find out soon um the supreme the u.s supreme court has taken up a case of a transgender woman who was fired uh she worked at a funeral home all right and um Right as she announced that she was going to transition, she wrote a letter, went through. I guess the place wouldn't have had like a traditional HR service that would have handled that kind of stuff. But mm. she wrote a letter saying, I'm going to present uh, as myself now. And she was fired. And actually, a lot of a lot of the case in uh, I've read some of it in the because it, it goes up the court process. So the appellate courts have ruled actually in her favor. But a lot of it was just dealing with the. Um, the the way because it's it's all it's the the big decision that they're trying to decide right now is whether transgender people are entitled to the same benefits that the uh, equality act of the 60s established for women and preventing sex-based discrimination and actually um sexual orientation discrimination is a bit separate and that's a bit all the right-wing religious groups are trying to put all that money into fighting it, and Trump's doing all the court stacking to try and uh, essentially write the law via our judiciary system. But mm. it's just interesting to hear you talk about all the sort of uh, the, the, the fine line and the, the rules of debate, because one thing that's really frustrated me, I'm in the same kind of position of, you know, if somebody... If somebody wants to talk to me about transgender issues from a more hostile perspective, I'll talk to them. I, I, I would love to be able to change their mind. But it's it's frustrating when you have a person who like, for example, just the fact that that the fact that you can find transgender people in basic I, I, pretty much every country has a recorded has has transgender people or everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah. it's and. If if people are just going to talk talk about and, and that's been the case for a long time now, at least All you know it, human history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. But but like you know, you can even like the the Nazis burned this uh, famous uh, researcher in Germany who had this really innovative transgender research that they burned. They were so afraid of him, they burned it. And that was 1930. Yep. So. Uh, or in the 30s, he was doing that. Um, and you just you you it's it's frustrating to be in a position where you want to have a conversation with somebody, but they're just going to look at you and think that this is some kind of like 
grade school social contagion or Caitlyn Jenner created it, created, you know, the <laughs> yeah. quote unquote transgenderism. It is, of, absolute, uh, you know, it is very absurd. I mean, I mean, there's, there's a few rules I bear in mind when I think about who I'm going to engage in these discussions with. And these, these rules that I've built up in my own mind have matured and developed significantly over the last several months. You know, it's kind of, as my knowledge has increased and my awareness of these issues has increased. And I'm very selective about who I'll, who I'll engage with. Um, I'm not prepared to engage in a conversation or a discussion with someone who wants to object to the very existence of trans people. I have no time, no energy, and no inclination to engage in a discussion with someone who wants to argue about whether trans people exist or whether trans people are fooling themselves or they're deluded in some way. I know that is untrue. Medical science has proven that that is untrue. All of observed social history has proved that that is untrue. I can take you within the community I live in, you know, and within half an hour, you know, I could introduce you to, I mean, a hundred different trans people um, who exist, who take up physical space, who live and breathe, and they are the physical living proof of the existence of trans people. So I am not prepared to engage in a conversation with someone whose fundamental basis for entering that conversation is to deny the reality of that person's existence. Um, similarly, you know, I wouldn't engage in a conversation around any LGBTQ-related issue, um, say we were concentrating the conversation on something to do with gay men. If you were going to try and persuade me that being gay is a choice, well, I'm not going to talk to you because I'm the living proof of the fact that I didn't choose to be gay. I know I didn't choose to be gay, and I don't need to debate that with anybody. And I'm not in the in a position or have the time or the energy to talk about that with someone. So I think that it's, it's completely reasonable, um, particularly for trans people, I think, because trans people come under so much more scrutiny and so much more intense scrutiny than I do as a gay man living my everyday life. There is no obligation for a trans person to engage with someone or to enter into a discussion with someone who wants to deny the reality of their existence. Why should they? Why should they waste their breath on a conversation like that that's trying to invalidate and deny their humanity? Like, why would we expect anybody to do such a thing? Um, and so I think that what we need to do is establish very, very clear boundaries about the fact that, no, your view on this is outside the realm of reasonable. Um, I am not prepared to engage with that. And I am only going to engage with those who do raise questions about how trans people can live their lives most safely and most effectively within our society. That's what I'm interested in talking about. Um, you know, I'm interested in talking about how can I, as an LGBTQ activist, as a medical doctor, as a citizen of this country, how can I live up to my duties of helping the transgender community living in the UK? How can I help them to live in our society in a more included, in a safer way, in a, in a fuller and more fulfilling way yeah. 
How can I do that? How can we arrive at a point where trans people have a better life experience than they do right now? That's the conversation. That's the question. How can we go from where we are now, what we understand now, what our knowledge is now, and what the law is now, and how can we move forward from there? And so many of these groups, so many of these, they describe themselves as feminist groups, you know, the anti-trans, trans-antagonistic hate groups. Yep. They don't want to talk about that. Gen- gender, gender critical. Gender critical, whatever they want to call themselves. <laughs> what, what, they want to, what they want to do is they want to have a conversation that results in a conclusion being made that trans people aren't real. That's what they, that's what they want to do. Um, and I'm not prepared to engage with that conversation. I'm not prepared to engage with that discussion. Similarly, and, you know, you know the, like, I wouldn't expect anyone in the media or any broadcaster to be engaging with people who take that standpoint. I think it's an unreasonable right, place to start from. Yeah, but the problem the the problem that we're facing right now, and you yourself have experienced this. You've been on uh, Sky TV, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. the The problem is you like. Your your guidelines that you laid out are, um, you know, practical, uh, compassionate. They they make a lot of sense, and yet we have this media that says, okay, here is somebody who has a lot of uh, knowledge and facts about uh, just just the medical science behind trans affirmative care, how valuable it is, what's wrong with all of those, you know, dated studies about you know transgender suicide rates that don't. Take, you know, you do something like that in the 90s before HRT becomes, you know, universal. I mean, um, you know, something that a person with a healthcare uh, plan can get, mm. you know, you, you go back and you do those studies now, they're going to look a hell of a lot different. But we have the media who says, okay, we'll put the activist on one side and then we'll put the, you know, extremist who just wants to invalidate all of this all that we have all that we know about transgender people which is quite a lot i mean there's plenty that we you know don't know but that's true of the human brain humanity and uh, at large you know but yeah you have a media who say okay these two sides are equal we're gonna put them up on two opposite sides of the host and for a very concise you know three second debate we'll have them you know state their view and then and then right before there's any sense of substantive discussion we'll cut to commercial and next segment (laughs) i mean you've really described the whole situation very very succinctly there and you know this is a real problem um with um the production of broadcast news here in the uk i'm not quite sure how it compares to broadcast news in the u.s well yeah, I mean, we get enough of that on cable. Of that, Some of it on broadcast. I think, I think that I think that what the um, what the problem is is that there are laws in the UK that say that we have to create a sense of balance around any story that is put out on broadcast news. Um, so you have to give you know one positive view versus one negative view and it really doesn't matter what the story is it's that the broadcaster is near enough always aiming to reach this point of balance which starts the whole debate off on a very very unfair basis really um and i think that um it's interesting how it happens um i think that the producers of um you know the the two main groups here in the uk are sky news and bbc news a lot of them are very very interested in creating what i'd call car crash television so they look forward to creating 
um, these situations, these moments where you get two um, adversarial participants who clearly have a dislike for each other, who completely object to the other person's point of view. It, there's already a lot of heated background to the discussion, and they just effectively give them a free reign to have a car crash five minutes of TV. Um, and, you know, it, it's often disastrous, um, completely disastrous in a lot of situations. And I think that when it comes to um, the issues of that affect the transgender community or issues that come up in transgender activism, um, a lot of the concepts that are needing to be discussed and outlined are inherently quite complicated subject areas. Um, and to your average man in the street, um, you know, your average person sat at home watching the 24-hour news channel, they may have a very, very elementary understanding of any of the issues being discussed on the news in that five-minute segment. Um, very little understanding of what it means to be a trans person. And they may never have heard of other terms, you know, such as um, non-binary or other terms that we may use in those similar discussions. Um, and similarly, you know, we get obsessive about the um, semantics around the use of the term sex and gender and about how different sides of the argument might interpret the use of those terms in different ways and might object to certain terms being used on cert at certain times and introducing terms such as cis which most of the time when you introduce that for the first time it needs a brief explanation most yeah reasonable people get on board with the concept of that word very very quickly but if then the adversarial counterpart decides to take exceptions to the use of the word cis then you've kind of been distracted for two minutes having to explain why that's a reasonable thing to do yeah and, exactly you know, very very quickly the argument descends into this very, very complex, niche, hyper-nuanced discussion that very few people who are not in the intimate inner circles of that debate would even have a remote chance of understanding. And it, it really doesn't work out too well. Um, now, I had a similar, I had an encounter like that, um, with a, trans antagonistic anti-trans activist here in the UK um which you know came about as a result of a bit of activism bit of lobbying that I did um and we went head to head as it were on Sky News um you know it didn't really turn out too well didn't really show either side in a positive light I don't think it made much of a positive contribution to the conversation and honestly if I could turn back the clock, probably wouldn't have agreed to do it if I knew what I knew now. Um, at the time, you know, not, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. Um, you know, I'd never been involved with any kind of high-profile activism of that nature. Um, it was something which I had no experience in whatsoever, and I was led into having this debate with this person on live national tv and you know i don't think it, i don't think either of us came out with a with a really glowing impression having been made on the general public um 
But, you know, I've learned from that now. And I think that my engagement in these conversations and the level on which I'm prepared to engage on these conversations is is more mature. It's um, it's more developed in terms of the level of knowledge I have. Um, my familiarity with a lot of the underlying concepts and history um, is a lot more in-depth now. And I probably wouldn't make the same mistake again. Um, but, you know, there we are. It's very easy to say that in in retrospect isn't it well it's just it's it's difficult especially um you know coming from a position where there's so much nuanced research and uh facts and all of that and you find yourself in a position where you have to debate somebody who instead of you know just just googling transaffirmative care or something Mm. like that they go and they pay for billboards with the dictionary definition of woman and plaster them everywhere. I mean, if, if, you know, it, it, I I guess the difficulty that you're describing with it just with cable news and the discussion is you have somebody who tunes in for five minutes and they see two sides and there's no context. There's no, there's, and there's no sense of follow through either because it's not like you have a, you have a news discussion with somebody and then you say, okay, next week we'll, you know, maybe we have to cut to commercial, but we'll pick back up on this topic and discuss it further. It's okay. Let's put this aside until something happens to bring it back into the news. And Mm -hmm. then we'll repeat this same debate. And actually we're just going to, we're going to use the old scripts that we use to protest gay people from way back when, and we're going to change some words and this will be the new, this will be the new debate. That's, that's the state of, of media in, I mean, from what I'm here, from what I see of like the Good Morning Britain clips and that kind of stuff, and yeah, a lot of yeah. what happens here, even on perceived left wing outlets, it's not just Fox News. Sometimes mm. we have very, very stupid. Uh, I've seen them on MSNBC, on even on broadcast NBC News. Um, they had this one far right commentator who said that uh, you know Trump won because of transgenderism and the moderator just sits there and nothing happens and it's it's bizarre and it's stupid Mm. but it's that's it's the national dialogue so it's frustrating because reasonable people who look at those two people and know like your background and the antics of this other person are it, it wouldn't it wouldn't take a reasonable person very long to like understand hey something's not right here with the state of these conversations we're having absolutely absolutely and i think that that's where this whole conversation is still very much on the back foot here in the uk and i think it's something that we need to work on and perhaps be a little bit more intelligent about is the understanding that the people who campaign against trans people have got a lot going for them in terms of the cards they can play. Like you, you raised the example of the, um, the posters with the dictionary definition of woman on them. Um, that's just one example is that, you know, I would characterize that as a, um, what I'd say is a transphobic dog whistle in that yeah. it's, um, you know, it's a sign which most reasonable people passing that sign in uh, as they go about their normal day-to-day business would look upon that sign and not have any reason to question why it was there they might think it was a bit strange and they might think oh right okay yeah woman adult human female that makes sense um and it does make sense it's a very reasonable dictionary definition it certainly isn't as detailed a definition as it needs to be and it certainly doesn't uh represent the reality of 
every single woman in existence. Um, and so, you know, that, and there's a lot of layers and complexities of that discussion and that debate that don't get portrayed on that poster. But then what it also does is to anybody who knows anything about this conversation, this discussion, such as any trans person who happens to be going down that same street or passing on the same bus or driving by in their car, they see that poster and that poster is symbolic. That poster is a sign that that trans person and the transgender community more broadly are not welcome and are not safe and are not made to feel like an included part of that community and of that society, and that someone has been able to put up a poster that gives out a very loud signal that trans people are not welcome here, trans people are not safe here, you are not welcome to live your life here as a trans person, trans man or trans woman or non-binary person, that you are not valid and you are, are not a member of our community. And that is the sign that is being given out. You know, it's very similar to a lot of the materials that were being put out around the time of the debate around marriage equality. Um, not so much here in the UK. It didn't quite happen so much because the, um, there was quite a lot of controls over that. Uh, but particularly in Australia, when they had their debate and discussion right. around marriage equality, a lot of materials were being put up then that would say things along the lines of, um, marriage is the everlasting union of one man and one woman. Um, you know, and yeah, to most people, that makes sense. To most people who have an, uh, a Judeo-Christian understanding of marriage in that traditional sense, that is a quite a reasonable position to take up. Um, that that is that is where that is what marriage is. But to any gay person or any person in a same-sex relationship looking at that poster, that poster tells you that your relationship is not valid that your relationship is not worthy of recognition by the state. It's another dog whistle that people use. Um, exactly. But to any casual observer in the street, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, and, you know, when they come up with all of their, all of the other um, biological essential, essentialism-based discussions around the fact that, you know, a woman has XX chromosomes and has breasts and a vagina and a uterus, and to most people who don't know anything or know very little about transgender people, perhaps don't even don't know a trans person themselves, would just take that at face value and say that, oh, right, yeah, that's what I was told at elementary school. That's what yeah. I learned in the very early stages of my scientific education. And I've stuck with it, that women do have a uterus, that women do have a vagina and breasts and have XX chromosomes. And so, yeah, that seems like a reasonable point to point to start from. Um, but then when you introduce any complexity or any nuance to that discussion, when you introduce trans women into that conversation or trans men, if we're talking in the opposite direction, um, and we say that, you know what, some women don't have those, those attributes. Some women do not meet this, this definition or, yeah. um, or tick these boxes that you're expecting them to tick. And that these women are just as valid as any other woman. These women live in our community and in our society as women and are recognized as women already. Um, you just may not have realized it yet. And, you know, right. obviously me explaining that or any other advocate explaining that, that, one takes a lot longer. 
uses some relatively complex language and also makes people question what they assumed was an infallibility in their own mind. It makes them scrutinize, oh, right, so I've been thinking about it wrong the whole time. And for me to get that through to them or for any other person to get that concept through, it involves breaking down so many more barriers and taking up so much more time, meaning that I'm always, or people like me are always at a disadvantage when it comes to engaging in any of these conversations, which is It's really frustrating, but I think we need to start being a little bit more intelligent about how we engage engage with this. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how we're going to do that. There's probably much brighter, cleverer people out there than me who can uh, (laughs) decide on that. But um, it's it's an ongoing problem. I think it's something we need to, as a community, start waking up to and thinking of ways of dealing with. Well, I'm glad you mentioned chromosomes. That's actually one that when people bring that up to me, I I, I kind of view it as an advantage because I, I, I included a bit of that in uh, my transgender manifesto that I wrote. But there are 30 different, at least 30 different chromosome patterns, over 30. And we don't do chromosome testing as part of any sort of general medical care. Mm. And it's it's such a nuanced discussion and it's such a nuanced subject, this, you know, deep into the science of, you know, what makes people. There's plenty of women out there who have, you know, seemingly cisgender, um, female reproductive organs, all of that, breast, vagina, all of that stuff. And they may have an XXX chromosome. There's people who even have XY chromosomes mm. and are fully able to reproduce. And those people exist. And I, I bring that up and then you get met with, well, that's just a small percentage. And it's like, well, how many transgender people do you think there are relative to the size? You know, it's like point transgender people make up between like 0.6 and a little over a percent of the entire American population. So how's that not a small number? (laughs) And it just, you talk about how we sort of um, move forward in the conversation. I mean, it'd be great if we had media organizations who could say, you know, hey, I can push back on this this chromosome talk because chromosomes are not this black and white weapon for the alt-right to use against transgender people. They actually kind of prove the fact that human uh, humanity is, is way more diverse than a male-female binary. Absolutely. I mean, we simply don't know how many people exist out in the world with these alternative configurations of chromosomes. I mean, we can make probably an intelligent guess at it, looking at how many people we, we randomly sample, how many of them turn out as having an alternative or a slightly different than average carrier type. Um, but we don't really know on any, on any kind of proven basis how many people are out there with these um, alternate arrangements of chromosomes. Um, and as you said, there are many, many people existing in the world, cisgender individuals, um, who have completely normal um, reproductive patterns, who have no issues um, to do with gender dysphoria or any other conditions around gender identity issues, um, who would never know 
from the moment they're born to the moment they take their last breath that they have an alternative arrangement of chromosomes and we simply they simply would never know because the the circumstances in which it would ever be necessary to screen a person's carrier type or to do any kind of chromosomal analysis are exceptionally rare and it's only been in a relatively very, very brief period of time that we've even been able to do this type of analysis. Um, it certainly isn't anywhere near a routine medical test. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a primary care doctor and it's certainly something I would never do. I would have never, I would never have reason to do it. Um, I've previously worked in pediatrics where, of course, if you have a newborn baby, that is delivered and obviously has some features of a, an undiagnosed syndrome or a genetic condition or whatever, it would be quite routine in those circumstances to do a chromosomal analysis and to see whether there are any problems that flag up. Um, but aside from that, the circumstances where it would ever be required or necessary are just so few and far between. Um, and so there are many, many people out there who do have these um, chromosomal issues, which may or may not be clinically relevant in any way at all. You know, similarly that, you know, and the thing is as well, is that when we talk about a person being male and female in chromosomal terms or in genetic terms, the whole situation is so much more complicated than whether that person has XX or XY. You've already alluded to the fact that there are so many complex and diverse configurations that any that any one person can have that's just one thing but the the codes the the programming essentially for all of the different physical attributes of what what a person would call a male body versus a female body occur all over the um the ge the genetic programming of a human person um and they occur in lots of different locations across lots of different chromosomes it certainly is not just located to the, uh, the x or the y chromosome it's so much more complex than that but as i was saying before about explaining that about getting that through to someone and to help them understand that that takes up so much more time so much more complex words and language that it's difficult to get these points across in a really snappy way that people can understand and with whom it will resonate. Because most people who've ever taken a Biology 101 class at school will know that the vast majority of men have XY. The vast majority of women have XX. And that's true. The vast majority of them do. But not no average person in the street has any awareness beyond that that's the only piece of information and only piece of knowledge they even have about chromosomes but it just serves as a really useful hook for these transphobic groups to use to say that i believe a woman is a person with an xx chromosomal configuration and that's the end of discussion as far as they're concerned that if you don't have xx you're not a woman I know it's more complex than that. You know it's more complex than that. And that doesn't only apply to trans women. It applies to lots of other women with lots of other different conditions, problems, and different types of bodies, um, all of whom are women in the same way. Um, doesn't matter what their chromosomes are. That's not the issue. That's not the point. A woman is not defined by her chromosomes. Just isn't the case. Exactly. Did you want to ask me about the um, healthcare system for trans people here in the UK? Love to talk about that. I think it's an important thing that 
we should we should talk we should talk about i mean you know you know um it's um it's an area of real challenge here in the uk um the trans related healthcare system here in the uk is simply not fit for purpose um that applies at every level there just simply is not enough of it there's not enough people working in trans related healthcare here in the uk um there are not enough clinics there's not enough appointments the waiting lists are too long there's too much gatekeeping that goes on it's just very very difficult for any person with any gender identity related issue to navigate their way through the healthcare system it's too difficult um from what you were saying at the beginning the the fact that you have to approve uh bank statements with your name i mean that's that would even put somebody like me, a transgender woman who has a medical gender dysphoria diagnosis. I'm on hormones. I fit kind of, you know, as 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 uh, challenging as it is to sort of define your average transgender woman. I mean, I mean, that that's obviously not a real, you know, you can't really find a concrete example. But I'm somebody who really the the only the only seemingly unusual thing about my transition versus like any cookie cutter narrative would be that I didn't change my name yeah, and it seems yeah. like even from that perspective it's something that you know is 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 weird but once you get past that it's it's you know uh, not not anything that's uh mm. you know it's it, it's it's you see these people and you said it earlier you know, the, the people who just tune in w- wouldn't really realize how many just transgender people there are out there trying to live normal lives and their lives would be a hell of a lot improved if uh, it wasn't so difficult to just get these really proven affirmative treatments. Yeah. And I mean, in here in the UK, um, just to clarify, the issue to do with changing your name on bank statements and things like that, that relates to purely to the awarding of a gender recognition certificate right so that's a that's a slightly different matter but going right the way back to the starting blocks as (laughs) it were so say that you're you are an adult um who has come to the conclusion that i am a trans person or i am having issues to do with my gender identity where do i go from here and the way it works here in the uk is that the first thing that most people would do in that situation um after a quick Google would probably be to consult with their own general practitioner, a doctor like me, a family Uh practitioner. um, And they would come and see me and we'd have a conversation about that. Now, bearing in mind that here in the UK, um, a GP appointment, an appointment with a doctor like me lasts 10 minutes. So that's very, very brief period of time to get out the complex nature of this, the complex content of this conversation. What you've then got to do is you've got to find a family practitioner who believes your story and knows enough about transaffirmative healthcare to know what to do and to know what the next steps are. Um, because what a lot of trans people here in the UK experience is that they go to their GP or their general practitioner and they discuss their concerns, issues around their gender identity. And the doctor effectively just dismisses them and tells them, oh, well, it's just a phase or I'll refer you to this inappropriate mental health-related service and the trans person doesn't get any further forward. Um, GPs here in the UK, um, they're encouraged to refer people who present with gender identity disorders to refer them to a um, gender identity clinic 
Um, now, a gender identity clinic is a specialist service um, run out of a major hospital. And there's one in most major cities around the UK. I can't remember how many there are exactly, but in each region of the country, there's usually at least one of them, probably a few more of them down in London. Um, but the waiting times for the first consultation at this clinic um, almost invariably is greater than 18 months. So wow. once you've gone to your GP um, and you've seen a GP who believes you and you've seen a GP who knows how to make that referral, you've then got to wait at least 18 months in most cases to be seen. Once you are seen at your first appointment, then there's a whole other waiting system that usually usually comes into play. And each clinic runs on a slightly different basis. Each one has slightly different rules. Um, they don't all run the same way because they all follow different guidelines. Um, they'll go through initial stages of assessment. There'll be a psychological um, assessment, counseling appointments, um, all different kinds of mental health assessments, physical health assessments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it usually takes at least, at the very least, one year between that first appointment and starting hormone therapy. So that means that from the day of you presenting to your GP, even with everything happening exactly as it should, with no problems or interruptions along the way, a trans person is going to be waiting at least two and a half years to be accessing their hormone therapy. Um, now I would say that's completely ridiculous. Um, and it's completely yeah. inappropriate. Um, and it's, it's, um, obscene when I tell this story to, well, most people perceive it as being obscene when I tell them this story and they come from other parts of the world, um, in terms of how easy it is for people to accept, access these treatments elsewhere around the globe. Um, and there's so many layers of gatekeeping involved at every single stage in trans-related healthcare here in the UK. Um, the hormone therapy is just one of them. Um, you know, right. so all different kinds of surgery is another. Um, one major problem we have here in the UK um, from the uh, transmasculine perspective, obviously from the transmasculine perspective, uh, top surgery is usually a very high priority uh, for people who yep. are transmasculine. Um, and that can, again, take many years to get through all of the relevant hoops and tick all of the relevant boxes to access that surgery. And then almost invariably, you get put on a waiting list for that surgery. And, you know, the waiting lists here in the UK for all types of surgery under our NHS system are very long anyway. And as you can imagine... Um, trans-affirmative surgeries are not deemed to be emergency procedures. And of course, they're not emergency procedures, but they are very crucial right. procedures for the people who need them. Um, so in terms of particularly um, trans men accessing top surgery and trans, trans women accessing all different types of gender-affirmative surgeries, um, the waiting times are inordinately long. Um, and the 
the opportunities that exist along the way for people to drop out of the system or not quite meet a certain criteria or to miss one appointment and to be discharged from the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's so problematic and so difficult for people to wow. navigate. Um, bear in mind that, you know, I'm a doctor. I have first-hand working knowledge of how systems within the UK healthcare system operate and how to navigate my way through them. For me alone, it's it's very, very complicated and very difficult and very frustrating. So God help anyone who is a trans person who is socially isolated may not have um, access to the same resources as that most people would have, don't have access to supportive networks of friends and family. How are those people going to be able to navigate successfully through that system, which just completely fails them at every single level? And it's so, so frustrating. Um, I mean, that's that conversation there, that narrative about um, trans healthcare, um, mostly relates to adults. But in the case of children and young people, it's even more frustrating um, the treatment that children and young yeah. people receive here in the UK. Um, you know, it's a, a whole other problem. You know, there's all kinds of ethical debates that go into whether trans healthcare for children should exist at all, uh, which I think is an absurd discussion, you know, because of course it should right. exist. Yeah. You know, trans children mm -hmm. exist, you know, look for, look for any trans adult and you'll find someone who wants <laughs> a trans child. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Trans exactly. children have existed yep. for as long as trans adults or trans humans have existed. So it's absurd to suggest they don't exist. Um, but in the UK, bear in mind, uh, we have a population in the UK of around about 65 million, um, probably about the same population as California, as far as I can recall. Um, yeah, just and, about. Yeah, yeah. And within the region of England and Wales, which has a population of about 59 million, 58, 59 million people, there is one clinic, one clinic that is in London, uh, in our capital city. Um, it's called the Tavistock. And that is the only centre in the UK that can provide any kind of trans-affirmative healthcare for trans children and young people under the age of 18. Um, now, again, the, the very concept, the idea of referring a child who you perceive to be transgender into a tertiary level specialist healthcare service that's a very difficult um, move for any ordinary general practitioner to make who might not have a great deal of knowledge around transgender issues particularly those relating to children and young people but once that referral is made the the um, clinic appointment for children and young people takes at least at the very least two years before that child is seen two years and you can imagine a lot of these children who are presenting are presenting at a very very time sensitive crucial crucial exactly period in their yeah. lives. so they're presenting at the ages of say 10 11 12 time when puberty is approaching very very close on the horizon if it's not already yeah. arrived um, and these children are really struggling with features symptoms of gender dysphoria and you know they go to their gp with their very well-meaning parents in some situations um and they ask you know because they've accessed this information themselves they've asked please will you refer my child to the tavistock so that we can get on the road towards some trans affirmative health care 
and the GP may well at first point refuse, um, and then it may take two, three, four, five appointments for the referral to actually be made. And then all that's happening then is you're starting a ticking clock that then you've got to wait two years before you're even seen. And then again, as with trans-adult care, there is a whole process of psychological assessments, of social services assessments, of physical health assessments, all different kinds of gatekeeping and hoop jumping that has to be uh, complied with by the trans child or trans young person and their family before the idea of medical treatment can even begin to be introduced. So the idea of putting that child onto blockers would only come about at least one year into their journey through the Tavistock system, which means that so many trans teenagers in this country are sat at home desperate to do anything they can to exert some degree of control over what is happening right. to their body, desperate and becoming significantly mentally unwell as a result of what's happening to them, desperately waiting for an appointment that could still be at least two years away. And what then happens as well, one of the major problems which I've taken enormous exception with uh, when it comes to the way that system works, if someone gets referred at, let's say, the age of, I don't know, 15 and a half, and then they get referred, they get plugged into the system, the referral is accepted, and then the ticking clock starts. Once it comes round to that child's appointment time coming up, and they then decide, oh, well, we'd actually only be seeing you when you are 17 years and eight months old. Therefore, there's no point us seeing you because we only see patients up to the age of 18. You might as well get referred into the adult service. And then that same person who's already been waiting two years gets shifted right the way back to the back of the queue, the back of the line, waiting for their first appointment in the adult clinic, by which point they'll then be 19 or even 20 years old having experienced the entirety of the wrong puberty by which point you know yeah. you know by which point the damage is done then the damage is done the full androgenizing effects of testosterone have taken hold um and you know all of the secondary sexual characteristics either male or female have fully developed by that stage and essentially we've lost that opportunity to spare that trans person the pain the discomfort the mental anguish of going through the wrong puberty. We've forced them to go through it because we've engineered a system that is simply not fit for purpose. What you're just describing is something uh, this just two days ago, I was at electrolysis, which I actually wouldn't have. I wouldn't need it if I had, uh, you know, transitioned before puberty. So what you're talking about in cases of kids who definitively no you know if you're going to go to a doctor and all that i mean this notion that there's all these clinics this happens in the america a lot where you know the narrative of oh you can just go to a planned parenthood and they'll give you hormones instantly i mean it's just so ridiculous um because we have a lot of um it was even difficult for me uh in southern california which is pretty progressive yeah. it was difficult for me to get a i had to go out of network for, and that's private insurance, which mm. is a whole different mess. But um, my, my my hormones are, are covered uh, as part of my insurance. But um, just I, I went to all these endocrinologist appointments with with doctors who had no idea what they were doing. Who who 
like should know in theory because that's exactly what they're supposed to study and they're just they it, w- it would be a case until i found a endocrinologist who's been specializing in transgender care since the at least the early 90s um i i, I couldn't find a doctor who a would be willing to see me and b ha- knew what they were doing and that was after i had to go through the same process with therapists just to get a letter it's ridiculous and for you know for transgender children time is of the essence. You obviously want to get these decisions right, but you find all these people who are so, um, who refuse to just accept the idea that transgender children do exist. So mm. they try to make, they try to prolong the process as long as possible until, you know, you have to live the rest of your life with the consequences of a puberty that could have been prevented. Absolutely. And I mean, Ridiculous. that's, that, that's been a real heated debate here in the UK around the issue of, um transgender children and the um the healthcare of children who are transgender um but again it always boils down these people want to deny the existence of transgender children it's like well as far as i'm concerned that's not a reasonable starting point because every no. trans person i've ever spoken to who are now trans adults who've gone through transition of of all types who've gone through that transition and are living in their you know affirmed gender identity tell me that they knew about this uh, from a very very early age and they may not have had the language to explain themselves very clearly and you know right. the the situation they were in may not have been safe for them to have explored those issues in any depth or for whatever reason they had a very unsupportive environment that they were growing up in but they knew that there was something something afoot. There was something there that needed to be dealt with and something that was going wrong with their body when they experienced puberty. Now, we're living in a society now where people can use that language much more openly and freely. We have words now that can yeah. explain and can uh, outline these issues in much more frank detail. And thankfully, we have more and more people in our society, um, parents in our society, who are much more tuned in to the welfare of their kids and can accept, you know, most parents can accept now that, you know, some of their kids may turn out to be gay. Um, and that's okay. That's absolutely fine. And more and more people yep. are recognizing that, you know, some kids are trans because some people are trans and those features of being trans emerge when a child is much, much younger. Um, and we know this, we can see this, you know, if, if we look back, I'm sure in your own personal history and, or in many, many of, of course. the trans people I look at, you knew uh, that what your identity was, you knew what your gender was right from the word go essentially. Um, and you, you know, it's, it's a shame that you weren't able to access that therapy, but thank God that you've been able to access it subsequently that you've been able to now access the care that you needed but as you alluded to your experience of life as a trans woman would have been much much straight more straightforward much easier and it would have been a much much more smooth process for you to integrate yourself into your community and into society more broadly if you hadn't have had to experience um that incorrect puberty and i completely understand i completely get and i can the questions that people raise about um concerns that we'd be misdiagnosing children as being trans i understand where those questions come from and i think these are valid questions and of course 
we should be very, very careful about the assessment that we make of children with gender identity disorders, uh, of children who are gender non-conforming or, child- or children who are overtly transgender. You know, we should be assessing them in a very, very cautious way. But I think if that's the argument that's going to be made, if you're going to be one of these people who encourages um, us to be very cautious and very careful about the children that we offer this treatment to, the only way that we can offer that, the only way we can deliver the care that you're asking us to deliver is by making more clinic appointments available, by expanding the service, by having exactly, people yeah. trained to deal with these issues available in people's local communities, in available in your local hospital, that you can be referred to see a person who lives or works very close to where your family is and can assess you rapidly so it because as we know as we've discussed already very very time sensitive issue you know like where literally from month yep. to month puberty can really roll on very very quickly that you can be assessed very quickly and you can get your foot in the door and you can undergo the assessment necessary to understand is this person presenting as a trans person with gender dysphoria who will need gender affirmative um, or trans-affirmative healthcare going forward into adulthood. Um, and that's a very, that's a difficult decision. That's a complex decision that needs multiple professionals involved. It has multiple layers to it. There are medical layers, physical layers, um, psychological layers. There's a social assessment to be done. There's an assessment to be done of that child's home circumstances, about what their background and what their history is. And that all takes time. That takes resources. And that's very, very expensive. So if you want these children to be guaranteed that they can access good quality care, and the right children can receive the right care as and when they need it, what we need to do is we need to massively expand the service and massively expand the training that people are getting in how to deal with the complex issues that transgender people, particularly transgender children and young people, present to their doctor with. And we need to be doing much more work on that. We need to be doing much better on that because at the moment, the amount of trans, uh, the amount of parents of trans children that I've spoken to who have literally broken down in tears in front of me, yeah. speaking about their frustration at how difficult it has been for them to advocate for their children. Because often these children are very, very young. They're not able to advocate for themselves. You know, you can't expect that a nine-year-old child is going to be able to do the relevant research on Google and be able to present themselves to their family practitioner and be able to access this care independently. That's an impossible ask. It's not possible. In the same way that if you had a child with any other complex healthcare condition, a complex health condition rather, you would expect that child's parents to get on board with that and to be involved in that child's care planning, be involved in supporting that child throughout the whole process. And for the parents I've spoken to um, who have been involved with that, often over many years, caring deeply for their children and just really wanting the best for them, it's so frustrating and so difficult. And despite all of the guidelines that come out, all of the research that's published from across the world, you know, because some of the care that gets delivered to trans children, um, the United States is a good example in many of your centres, Australia, the Netherlands, the care that is offered to trans kids is 
it's brilliant um, compared to what we do here in the UK. And at the moment, we're we're so lagging behind um, who should you know our global competitors, as it were. You know, countries that are the equivalent of us. You know, rich yeah. Western first world countries. Um, and we're letting we're letting our kids down. We're letting them down. And part of what I do, and part of the advocacy I do, and part of the activism that I'm involved with, that's what it's about. It's about making sure that people who need it can access the care they need as and when they need to. And that's a major driving factor for me. That's one of the great motivators, and it's one of the things that keeps me going. Is that I know how difficult this healthcare system can be for trans people trans children and young people especially but even you know for trans adults as well and um, at every stage even people who have undergone what one might call full transition whatever that actually means yeah. but people who've been right the way through the transition experience even those individuals who are at the end of their journey still meet so much discrimination and prejudice and just have a generally hard time of navigating their way through the system. And I think that's just unfair. I think it's unfair. I think it's wrong. And I think it's my duty as a doctor working in this system to fight against that and to do whatever I can, the little bit I can, to make sure that these, these issues get the prominence they deserve and the, and the attention that they need. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the... You bring up the um, American healthcare system, and I, I have some experience with uh, the parents of transgender kids, and it, it it just breaks your heart because even you know the 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 healthcare system here for trans kids is a little better, and I've seen a lot of kids who are currently going through it, and they're living these rich, happy lives, and I, it's such a, it's a it's a good note to end on because. Um, you know, we, we when it when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to discussions in the media, um, people like Dr. Harrop and myself, there's there's really constructive ways forward to have these um, in, incredibly nuanced discussions. And what it boils down to is a matter of a very unnecessary resistance from another side that that doesn't maybe think it can win. Because if you look at the gay marriage debate, I mean. We went through the same thing, and uh, you know, I like to I like to imagine that the world we're going to leave the next generation of transgender kids will be better than this one. Um, hopefully, we'll leave it in a better spot. I'm very hopeful that we will. I'm very, I'm very, and I, and I think that that's a really important thing is that you've got to stay hopeful. You've got to give people hope, and that you've got to stay on message, and you've got to be consistent, and you've got to keep fighting. And that's certainly, you know, what I want to do going forward is just believe in the fact that this will get better. This got better for me and my community. You know, I'm a, a gay man. It got better for us. We got through a whole lot of adversity with the support of our LGBTQ family. You know, we got through it together and things got better for us all. Um, and we're right the way through the other side of that journey for the most part. You know, we have so many protections in law so many more civil liberties that are protected now we have equal marriage here in the uk certainly um and you know we still face certain levels of adversity and hostility in many aspects of our lives but things are a hell of a lot better now for gay men like me than they were 30 years ago 
And I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm very grateful those activists who went before me, the generations that came before me, fought those battles on my behalf. And I'm very, very grateful to them. Um, And it's really an honor and a privilege to be able to be involved now in this contemporary discussion where we're going through a lot of the same discussions and the same debates, the same fights for the transgender community. And we will get there. We will do better. Things will improve. And change will come. Um, it's just a, just about when. And uh, we just need to keep yeah. fighting. Well, exactly. That's why we uh, need to keep up the fight. And it has been such an honor to have you on, Dr. Harrop, to talk about all of these topics. It's been such a rich, rich discussion. And this is one I'm definitely going to have uh, a lot of fun editing. Because <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, you just hear all, uh, all of your... Uh, very thorough explanations on these these issues and i you know the the thought came into my mind a solid 10 or 15 times you know why couldn't why can't the mainstream topic uh mainstream discussion be like this because this is these are we have real solutions to a lot of these problems it's just a question of who the hell wants to hear it and, and making them it you know communicating it in a way that the general public can get on board because i i I like to think that, you know, humanity is inherently good. We just got these bad apples who, uh, you know, make a lot of noise. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much for the opportunity to come and speak to you, Ian. It has been a real pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I think we've covered a lot of really interesting material. I feel like we've only started to scratch the surface, though. I feel like we could keep going, oh, yeah. for, another, <laughs> keep going for another two or three hours at this rate without any problems. So maybe we'll have another conversation again in the future. So, I would uh, love that. I would love yeah, that, too. Thank bad. you very, very much for the opportunity. Thank you. And to you, the listener, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.